Join us for a one-of-a-kind online operatic celebration. On December 3rd at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time, the Guild will present Silver Soiree, an online gala. During this 90-minute celebration, we will honor the 25th anniversaries of the Metropolitan Opera debuts of Stephanie Blythe, Christine Gerke, Denise Graves, and Patricia Rossette. This Silver Anniversary Gala will feature appearances from our honorees, a musical performance by Angel Blue, video tributes from Marilyn Horn, Frederica von Stada, and maestro Yannick Nezet-Seguin, and appearances from more of opera's other biggest names. This is sure to be a celebration that you will not want to miss. Your participation in this important fundraising event will support the Guild's transformative school programs, which last year alone introduced opera to more than 14,000 students from nearly 200 schools. To learn more or to register for this fantastically unique virtual event, please visit www.metguild.org silver or call 212-769-7009. We can't wait to celebrate with you. Did you know that Ludwig van Beethoven's favorite dish was macaroni mit parmesan käse, which translates to macaroni and cheese? Find out more fun facts and historical information in today's episode, where we celebrate the anniversary of Beethoven. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. In 1770, this year marks the 250th anniversary of composer Ludwig van Beethoven. His influence in Western classical music is unparalleled, and his transformative and revolutionary works, especially his nine symphonies, took music in a new direction. I'm your host, Stuart Holt, and on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we're joined by composer, conductor, and audience favorite, Victoria Bond, as she discusses the massive innovation and influence of this great composer. Beethoven, Fidelio, the evolution of musical ideas. It is fascinating to identify some of Beethoven's key musical and dramatic ideas and to trace them throughout his works. He returned time and time again to ideas that were central, reusing them, developing and refining them. He often borrowed music from earlier works to reuse in later ones. And a perfect example of this is the aria Das Stiegen Dimension, which he composed for the funeral cantata on the death of Joseph II when he was 19 years old. He remembered this music when he was composing Fidelio and reused it with modifications in the finale of the opera. Here is the passage.
Let's listen first to the aria from the funeral cantata and then to the portion of the finale of Fidelio that uses the same musical material. In this recording, the soprano is Martina Arroyo in a recording by the New York Philharmonic conducted by Thomas Shippers. In this recording, the cast is soprano Hildegard Behrens, soprano Sona Gazarian, tenor David Kübler, and bass Hans Soutin in a recording of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and Chorus conducted by Sir Georg Scholte.
As you can hear, Beethoven expanded this passage, filling it out with extended and expressive features. He used the original motif as a scaffold upon which to build and add the new musical insights he had acquired since the time when the motif was first written. This example gives us insight into how Beethoven built upon his early works, keeping what was significant and discarding what was not. Beethoven's musical expression of grief had certain characteristic intervals. A descending minor second was one of the tools he used, and in Fidelio, the second act begins with this interval, creating a mood of gloom and anguish as we are introduced to Florestan in his underground prison cell. The interval of a minor second, descending minor second, sounds like this. It's the smallest interval on the piano, and the descending quality gives a kind of sighing to it. So this is the way it sounds in the beginning of Act Two, when we first are introduced to Florestan in the underground prison cell. And he does that descending minor second again. And the third time, he gives us an emphasis on the, the expressive note by writing an ornament, making it even more pathetic, more um, heartfelt. And this is what it sounds like. Solemnis, Christ's crucifixion and burial, use the same interval in the crucifixus section of the credo. This movement also reflects a descent into darkness reminiscent of the Fidelio passage. So in the Misa Solemnis, Beethoven uses the interval of the minor second, the descending minor second, in a lot of different ways. It's not always the same, even though the interval is always the same. And here's the interval all by itself. So he uses it over and over again, but it's never repetitious. It's always expressive. The beginning of the crucifixus sounds like this.
he also uses this interval in this very expressive passage that underpins the word passus, passus, suffering, suffering. And this is an expression of the minor second in yet another variation. out the dissonant note here um, of a B flat against so he emphasizes this dissonance um, together with the minor second expressive and that pain of suffering is tangible with this with this dissonant note let me just play this again is another significant interval that Beethoven used in both Fidelio and the Misa Solemnis, the descending sixth. When Florestan cries out from his prison cell, he expresses his grief and despair in an interval of a descending sixth, like this. This is also an interval that Beethoven used again and again to express grief. So the introduction to this descending minor sixth has those characteristic descending minor seconds as follows. Gott, wie dunkel hier. Just as Beethoven used the descending minor sixth, in Fidelio, he also uses this interval in the Misa Solemnis for the word passus. Passus. And here. Passus. Passus. So that interval had particular significance to Beethoven. Let's listen to how Beethoven uses these two intervals in both of these works. In this recording, the Florestan is sung by tenor Peter Hoffmann in a recording of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and chorus conducted by Sir Georg Scholte.
This is a recording of the Misa Solemnis by the Vienna Philharmonic and Swedish Radio Chorus, conducted by James Levine. Variations and the Ode to Joy. The iconic melody of the Ode to Joy in the Ninth Symphony, completed in 1824, began as an idea from Beethoven's choral fantasy written in 1808 for a benefit concert, a program that included the premieres of the Fifth and Sixth Symphonies, as well as the Fourth Piano Concerto, and excerpts from the Mass in C major. Beethoven himself was the piano soloist. 
the choral fantasy was written expressly to engage all of the performers in a, quote, brilliant finale. In a letter of 1824, when he was writing the Ninth Symphony, he described his project as, quote, a setting of the words of Schiller's immortal Lied an die Freude, in the same way as my pianoforte fantasia with chorus, but on a far grander scale, end quote. Here is that original seed of an idea from the choral fantasy. It is quite simple and straightforward. In the choral fantasy, the melody of the Ode to Joy is present in its embryonic stage. So you can hear how much more simple this is than it will be in the Ninth Symphony. straightforward and simple. In the choral fantasy, you'll hear a performance conducted by Seiji Ozawa. Beethoven took this idea that he knew was strong and full of potential and developed it into a set of variations, one of his favorite forms. What are some of the variation techniques he used? Beethoven takes this melody of the Ode to Joy and adds variation after variation on it. The first one I want to demonstrate is a contrapuntal line to the underlying harmonies, which, you, as you remember, are very simple, just one, five, and one. And this is now in D major, whereas the choral fantasy was in C major. So this is the contrapuntal line all by itself that he adds to, that, to those harmonies.
and it goes on and on, all of these flowing eighth note contrapuntal line. The next variation of the melody is a march, the Turkish march, and he has the tenor singing portions of the melody, again varied, um, on top of the march. The melody is disguised, but it's still the same melody, but of course varied. In this variation of the melody, Beethoven takes the original in augmentation, that is, he expands it to be slower. And underneath that, he has a running line of counterpoint. So before, we had the bass line underneath and a running line of counterpoint above. And now what we've done is flipped that and had the melody above and this running line underneath. So the augmentation of the melody is basically... running bass line sounds like this. So putting these two together, we have a new variation of the Ode to Joy melody. In this variation, he has a new rhythm again. He has a feeling of three and he has, starts out with the altos and the sopranos with this new way of expressing the melody. And finally, the last variation I want to point out is in diminution, which means that the note values are shorter and it's in a faster tempo. So you remember. And what he does is he takes that and he makes it very quick and with shorter note values. The elemental power and simplicity of the original melody was retained but it was expanded into a grand scheme. Let's listen to how these variations flow seamlessly from one to the other. In this recording of the Ninth Symphony, you hear the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and Chorus conducted by Ricardo Muti. The soprano soloist is Camilla Nyland. The mezzo-soprano is Ekaterina Gubanova. The tenor is Matthew Polenzani and the bass is Eric Owens. Freude, Freude, 
March. We can follow Beethoven's greater and greater sophistication of the march, comparing the two in Fidelio to the Turkish march that precedes the Ode to Joy in the Ninth Symphony. The two marches in Fidelio are both quite straightforward and emphasize the strong beats of the measure. That's the first march and the second march, and as you can hear, it's pretty straightforward and pretty basic. In this recording, you hear the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and Chorus conducted by Sir Georg Scholte.
By contrast, the march in the Ninth Symphony emphasizes the weak second beat, making it more dance-like and giving it a decidedly lively character, particularly jocular as it begins with the contrabassoon, bass drum, and piccolo. In the Turkish march, unlike the marches in Fidelio, Beethoven emphasizes the weak beat, the second beat, which gives a kind of a lift to the march. It's not as predictable or as stolid as the Fidelio marches. And this is what it sounds like. So that's the second beat. One, two, one, two, one, two. In this recording of the Ninth Symphony, you hear the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and Chorus conducted by Ricardo Muti. Counterpoint. Counterpoint gradually occupied more and more of Beethoven's attention, culminating in the wealth of fugues that glorify the Misa Solemnis. In the Mass in C major of 1807, his fugal skills were not as accomplished as they became in the Misa Solemnis, as we can hear from these two examples in the Gloria, first from the Mass in C major and then from the Misa Solemnis. This is a recording of the Mass in C major conducted by John Elliott Gardner with the Monteverdi Choir.
In the Missa Solemnis, Beethoven uses the full arsenal of Baroque techniques, such as augmentation, diminution, invertible counterpoint, double counterpoint, etc., creating a rich and varied texture and building momentum. This is a recording of the Misa Solemnis by the Vienna Philharmonic and Swedish Radio Chorus, conducted by James Levine.
counterpoint is very much in evidence in Fidelio, notably in the luminous quartet of Act I. Each of the four characters enters one by one, adding the second voice to the first, the third to the second and first, and finally the fourth to the other three, building up the counterpoint complexity with the addition of each voice. In this recording, the cast is soprano Hildegard Behrens, soprano Sona Gazarian, tenor David Kübler, and bass Hans Soutin in a recording of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and Chorus conducted by Sir Georg Scholte.
recitative. Beethoven adapted the recitative, taking it from the opera house into the concert hall, and in the Ninth Symphony, applying it to both the instrumental basses and cellos of the orchestra, as well as to the bass solo singer. What exactly is a recitative? In operas of the 18th century, the recitatives conveyed the important plot information that connected the arias and ensembles. They were generally sung in a rapid tempo and with the freedom of normal speech, contrasting the measured tempo and sustained singing of the arias or ensembles. The recitative accompaniment was played either on the harpsichord or, if accompanied by the orchestra, the texture was light and transparent. In this first example from Fidelio, Leonora has overheard the plan to murder her imprisoned husband, and when she is alone, she expresses her fury and hatred of the man who would do such a thing. The orchestra provides an introduction and minimal accompaniment, leaving the singer in the clear to sing the recitative with the freedom of speech. So this is the recitative that Leonora sings in Fidelio, and as you can hear, the bass gives her a little introduction and then gets out of her way so that she is able to sing this recitative with the kind of freedom that you would use if you were speaking the lines. In this recording, you hear Hildegard Behrens' soprano in a recording by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and Chorus conducted by Sir Georg Scholte.
In the Ninth Symphony, Beethoven first introduced the idea of a recitative in the cellos and basses of the orchestra, giving them wordless phrases. They comment on the brief moments from earlier sections in the symphony, and with each section, their phrases imply that this is not the music they are seeking. They reject each of the sections until the music of the Ode to Joy is played, to which the cellos and basses finally grant their approval. This is a wildly original idea, and our familiarity with the symphony should not diminish the astonishment of having instruments actually implying speech and commenting on the music they have heard. The demarcation between instrumental and vocal music has been breached. These wordless notes played by the cellos and basses are heard again a few moments later when the solo bass singer repeats them, somewhat altered and abbreviated, giving them words and a human voice. What earlier was only implied is now made clear. In the Ninth Symphony, Beethoven takes this idea of the recitative and gives it to the cellos and basses, so they have the same kind of uh, note values that you would have in a recitative with the same kind of freedom, but there are no words. And uh, this is what the, the first one sounds like. hear how expressive that is, even though there are no words, you can understand what the meaning of that phrase is supposed to be. Here's the next one. In this recording of the Ninth Symphony, you hear the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and Chorus, conducted by Ricardo Muti. The soprano soloist is Camilla Nyland. The mezzo-soprano is Ekaterina Gubanova. The tenor is Matthew Polenzani. And the bass is Eric Owens.
overcoming tragedy, the journey from despair to joy was an overarching theme for Beethoven, and that triumph is expressed in many of his works. In Fidelio, the trajectory is from the depths of Florestan's prison cell to the final ecstatic moment when Leonora and Florestan are reunited. In the Misa Solemnis, the resurrection that follows Christ's burial is a manifestation of transcendent joy. In the Ninth Symphony, the Ode to Joy waits until the end of the symphony to express pure joy and friendship. Although Beethoven had a seemingly inexhaustible resource of creative ideas, he returned again and again to motifs that were part of his musical identity, many of them from his youth. In the examples we have just heard, you can follow how he refashioned, expanded, and developed some of these motifs, applying his immense ability to see them anew. That was composer, conductor, and lecturer Victoria Bond discussing the great classical behemoth Ludwig von Beethoven. To learn more about Beethoven and his soul opera Fidelio, make sure to listen to next week's episode where we take a deeper look at his only operatic work. To keep up with all things opera, make sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera, the Metropolitan Opera Guild, and Opera News on all your favorite social media platforms. I'm Stuart Holt, and thank you so much for listening.